Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From time to time here on The Naked Scientist, we showcase some of the other programmes that we make as part of our Naked Scientist family. And this week, we're bringing you an episode of Naked Reflections. This is particularly important at the moment with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. The Russian invasion of Ukraine and the mass suffering of its citizens have sent shockwaves across Europe and the rest of the world. One of the Kremlin's pretexts for the war was to prevent what they characterized as a Kiev-planned genocide of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the eastern provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. To weaponize the threat of such a heinous crime shows breathtaking political cynicism. As for the claim that Russia wants to denazify Ukraine, slyly referencing the Holocaust and the six million Jews who perished, is a bizarre thought in the extreme, since President Zelensky is Jewish. His great-grandfather died in the Holocaust, and I'd imagine he'd be familiar with Primo Levi's account of what genocide really means in his masterpiece, If This Is a Man. You who live safe in your warm houses, you who find warm food and friendly faces when you return home, consider if this is a man who works in mud, who knows no peace, who fights for a crust of bread, who dies by a yes or a no. Though the comment seems superfluous, but spool back 20 years from the Holocaust and a genocide of about one million Armenians was getting started in Ottoman Turkey. The Turkish state still denies that it happened. Jump forward to the 1970s and Pol Pot was leading a genocide of Cambodians conducted by Cambodians. In 1990, it was Hutus massacring Tutsis in Rwanda. And in 1995, during the Bosnian Civil War, over 8,000 Bosnian Muslims from Srebrenica were slaughtered. Nezjad Avtic, who was 13 years old at the time, survived the roundup and lived to tell his extraordinary tale. When the war in Bosnia started, I, I was a 14-year-old boy attending primary school. I was old enough to be aware of everything, but I could never imagine that I could be a direct victim. Of course, I was afraid, but it seemed to us that the hostilities and the violence uh, were distant from us, from my family, because my parents were not politically engaged and politically active. Uh, we thought that uh, uh, the war will last shortly, 
uh, at the beginning of the conflict in Yugoslavia, uh, war footage from Croatia and Slovenia uh, were coming every day on daily basis, but uh, they were far. Uh, we, we thought, uh, uh, however, very soon, in, in just a few months, uh, the war spread and, and escalated. It became a reality in Bosnia as well. My school stopped working. Uh, we fled in, in front of the Serbian army, left our home forever. My village was burned down and we lost all we had. Uh, and people who did not manage to escape were killed. As by the spring of 1993, all of eastern Bosnia had been ethnically cleansed of, mo of Muslims. The only shelter we could find was in Srebrenica. The only Muslim enclave that became a protected zone by the United Nations at the time. I came to Srebrenica with my father, my mother and three younger sisters. I remember those days. I remember our arrival in the town in particular. There were people everywhere on, on the streets that was a real hell. Uh, refugees could uh, not find a room for living. They were freezing and dying outside. Starvation was raging. Uh, then American planes started with providing uh, food by airdrop operations. And it always happened during the night. Uh, so at the time we spent almost every night by the fire in the hills around the Srebrenica, waiting for the sound of planes. If managed to find something that night, the next day we would have to eat. People were being killed every day by shelling already many of my relatives and neighbors were killed and massacred. After the establishment of the protected zone, we lived something over two years under the UN flag, under the UN protection, and expected and hoped the war would end. Suddenly, a Serb offensive started again, and we had to flee again. But it was a question where to go again, where to go. That, that was a question for all of us. Uh, I was 17 years old and I feared for my life. My father and my uncle and me took the decision to join the column of men and boys uh, which tried to reach free territory. Tuzla city around 100 kilometers far from Srebrenica. Running away we were under constant bombardment by Serb artillery from the hills. On that dead road many were killed and wounded. In the chaos, I lost my father and ran through the crowd crying and calling for him. We couldn't keep going forward because the column was cut. Then Serb soldiers and police officers began with the threatens over megaphone that we would be killed if we don't surrender, if we don't get out of the woods. Soon after that, a big part of the column surrendered and we were loaded onto trucks and driven to a, to a school ground where we were forced to take off our clothes while soldiers tied our hands behind our backs. Over the course of the night we were taken to a field and ordered to line up in rows of five to be shot. When my turn came I, I saw rows and rows of dead bodies in front of me. I was shot three times in my stomach, my right arm and my left foot. As I lay on the ground in, a, in unbearable pain, lines of people fell down around me and I heard the sound of bullet firing.
I thought of my mother and how she would uh, never know what had happened to me. Ar around midnight, I noticed the man who was moving uh, and I asked him if, if he was alive, come to untie me. We managed to untie each other and free the, the field. To stem the bleeding, the man ripped up his shirt and wrapped it around my wounds. On that location, for, for mass executions were killed between 800 and 1,000 people. After days of suffering and wandering through the woods and hiding in the streams, we managed to reach territory under the control of Bosnian government. Genocides in the plural is our grim subject this week. The word was first coined in 1944 by Rafael Lemkin, a Polish Jewish lawyer who had fled to America. Was the word created for what had been till then a nameless crime, or were genocides unique to the 20th century? Perhaps not, because some consider what happened in Darfur, Sudan in 2003 was also a genocide. With me to discuss this topic are Dr. Maryam Kalachi, chaplain of St. Hilda's College, Oxford, who's written about the Armenian genocide, and her first monograph on the book was completely empty. The book represents her attempt to address the narrow and limiting scope of denial and its inability to articulate the aftermath of a catastrophe whose effects continue to be felt in our present. Her most recent book is Reading Silences, Essays on Women, Memory and War in 20th Century Turkey. Joining Maryam is Dr. James Smith, co-founder of the UK's National Holocaust Centre and of the Aegis Trust a peace education programme. James initiated the East Midlands Kosovo Appeal in 1995, and he also established the Kigali Genocide Memorial in Rwanda's capital at a site where 250,000 victims of the 1994 genocide lie buried. Welcome both. First, your reaction to Nezja's witness. Maryam? So I think it's it's really, really difficult to respond to a story like Nevzad's story because for me, the only appropriate answer would be really um, silence and, and holding space for his pain and memories. Um, and I would like to like us to do this um, just for a quiet moment together, maybe um, just being in sil silence together and um, and hold Nevzat and all the others who have gone through similar experiences. Miriam, your first book on the Armenian genocide was completely empty. Please explain what that's about. Yeah, completely empty except of page numbers. And the page numbers were 365 because... During the year 1915, when the Armenian genocide began in the Ottoman Empire, in the book, I left a lot of clues, even though it's empty. And the story behind the book was that when I was an undergraduate in Istanbul, so I'm both from a German family and a Turkish family. And when I studied in Istanbul for my undergraduate paper in history, I had researched um, some of the documents that my father had collected over the years. And they were on Armenian genocide and medical experiments done by the Turkish officials on Armenian victims. 
And I had written my thesis on that and then um, presented the thesis to my class and everyone was really silent. I mean, people could not believe that I was talking about it. And I did not know that we weren't talking about the Armenian genocide in Turkey because my family was very open about it. And I was thrown out of the university and that never left me. So um, when I finished my history degree, um, first at Boazici and then I went to Yale and Cambridge, I came back to Turkey and wanted to publish on it, but I knew I could not publish on it because I thought any words that I'm going to put in will criminalize me and um, will endanger me. So I wanted to but still publish a book about the Armenian genocide. So I published it completely empty and it immediately got censored by the government. And then I went on a reading tour and I was reading it silently and that was quite powerful. So (laughs) this is just in a nutshell the, the story of the book. I could talk forever about it, of course. So James, just listening to that whole equation, if you like, of silence and denial, it epitomizes the problem, doesn't it, that those of us who are engaged in teaching and understanding genocide face? Can I just say, Marion, what a fantastic concept to publish a book with that void in it, um, which just speaks so many volumes. I I think the idea that a, a book with no words in it can be censored or banned speaks for itself as well, because what you were conveying was clearly understood by the authorities. In regards to the Armenian genocide and its denial in Turkey, it's perhaps an extreme example, but we, we see this, you know, after every genocide. You know, Gregory Stanton's described denial as the final stage of genocide, and it, it begins as the genocide is being perpetrated. The denial is always happening at the same time. The same arguments that are used to justify the genocide continue long after But the silence as well is, even though you might say, well, after the Holocaust, there's all this literature, you've just been reading Primo Levi and numerous accounts of testimony and films and memorials all over the world. How can we say that there's silence after the Holocaust? But the sheer magnitude of what took place and for many survivors, you know, even their own testimonies are distilled down to to that which the listener can absorb. It's almost like subconsciously they have filtered it for our benefit, those of us who weren't there. So it's digestible for us and acceptable. And behind that, there must be this huge void of silence of the things that are unspoken. And I only very recently, uh, a dear friend, um, Holocaust survivor, passed away but you know I won't mention his name or his family but it's it's known to us that you know he committed suicide and this is some um, 70 years afterwards and the nightmares that he had and he used to tell his story at times but couldn't tell it all it haunted him of what couldn't be spoken and you know decades after the the holocaust and his survival it drove him to ending his own life. And I think that just speaks so much about this unspoken stories of genocide that, you know, for those of us who weren't there, we only get a tiny glimpse and we'll only ever get a tiny glimpse into the unimaginable. 
I want to say two things to this about your dear friend. Um, first of all, I'm very, very sorry to hear. In my research on the Armenian genocides, and especially now moving to my new book about insanity and looking at records in different hospitals, whether it's in New York or whether it's especially in Lebanon or in now Eastern Armenia, Republic of Armenia, looking for um, genocide survivors, one thing that really came up for me was, for example, Lebanon, there is a mental hospital that was once founded by British Quakers. And in that hospital, you suddenly saw a surge of Armenian genocide survivors coming into the hospital or being brought into the hospital by their families after the Lebanese civil war. And this is, of course, very curious. And similarly, something like that happened in Armenia after the big earthquake in Armenia in 1988 in Gumri. And one of the things that what what this points towards is that genocide survivors, you know, once they have survived and they start building their families and their careers, they're so enmeshed in this daily life that this unspokenness is kind of pushed down and it really takes either retirement or a lot of free time when that kind of busyness of daily life is not there anymore or a big tragedy to trigger those memories again. And it's very difficult to come back from that place a second time. A lot, but then on the other hand, I also want to underline that it's not them who are living in insanity, it's really us who, who don't find the language to encounter them in their tragedy. And often when um, when I discuss it with my students um, here at Oxford, a word comes up that, I have to be very honest, upsets me a lot when people say, or speak of unspeakable tragedy. I always think about what Prophet Amos once said, that it's actually not language that fails us to describe the tragedy, but we have failed those who have lived through um, tragedy. And so when people say it's unspeakable, it's not unspeakable, just it's us who cannot stand in, you know, in relation to those survivors and really look at them and hold them. Um, because if we were to do that, then like the survivors of genocide, we would no longer believe in the fellowship of human beings. And that's really important for our day-to-day -day lives. Once you have gone that, that place, it's really difficult to return. And so I wanted to ask you, James, whether you would, of course, in your work, in your engagement with survivors, how do you meet them in the sense of Martin Buber? How do you stand opposite them and how do you look at them and how do you hold space for them without it affecting you and your day-to-day -day life? You know, I think you're probably one of the first people to have asked me that question. And it's a, it's a very difficult question um, because it raises a lot of challenges. One about do we, you know, can we go far enough to meet survivors? Because if we do, what does it do to, to us when we face the reality of what humanity is capable of? And so, yes. Hundreds of times, you know, I've sat in rooms and listened to survivor stories and, and afterwards, you know, what, what do you say? Because you, you can feel the emotional drain, even survivors that have told their stories hundreds of times. And you feel that for some of them, it's almost become a routine. You know, there's this emotional drain that you you can't do much about. Sometimes it's just a matter of sitting and having you know, a cup of tea and, and talking about other things because... The survivors, after they've spoken, they need to return back to where they've been 
you know, this is a role, you know, at the Holocaust Center where survivors speak on a daily basis. It's become something of a home because, and it was just a routine that my mother started when survivors came, she'd bring them over to a cottage for tea afterwards, a cup of tea, cake. But it was such an important part of having been down, looked back into that darkness, it communicated it again to come back into what we say is the normal world. But I think when I look back at the times when I've been with survivors, it's not speaking, it's not listening even, it's just being there. I, you know, I recall, as you were asking me the question, being in Rwanda, maybe this would be 11, 12 years after the genocide, and there were survivors still finding the remains of their loved ones that had been thrown into wells or buried in shallow graves. Uh, and then they exhumed their, their loved ones or what they thought might be their loved ones, tried to identify them and put them into coffins and carried them. And I remember the, the mass grave down at what was then known as the Gisozi Memorial on a hillside outside the capital city, Kigali, where you know, survivors would be carrying their, their coffins. And April is the rainy season. These mass graves have been built. There is mud everywhere and there's heavy rain. And because I turn up, you know, an NGO with my suit and my tie and it's, it's totally inappropriate thing to wear but of course it was meant to be out of respect and what I remember is just you know trying to help carry those coffins along the, the muddy slippery slope standing in the rain people you know singing songs and priests saying prayers and it's it's not doing anything saying anything it's just trying your hardest to just be there knowing that you can never feel what they're going through right now and really never fully understand it. But being close and showing that empathy and I think being in that place is, is sometimes the best we can do. And also doing something that is practical. Sometimes, you know, survivors have been um, left in the most terrible situations of destitution, not for any other reason, but because of the genocide, because their houses have been destroyed, their livelihoods, they've had no educational prospects because they're having to pick up the pieces and somehow feed their younger siblings. And, and I think doing practical things is a way of helping to rebuild lives. Going back to this, this point, James, of presence, that's also my experience, whether it's taking students to the Holocaust Centre in Nottingham and to be in the presence of a survivor and to hear the testimony, the fact that they are encouraging that person by listening, by being present, is quite powerful to the person telling the story. And so you've got this odd combination, this very uncomfortable combination. You've got the silence that Miriam was talking about. And you've got the silence sometimes when people leave the talk they've received, they are silent because they're processing it, they're digesting it. But the very presence itself uh, gives sustenance, it seems to me, when I look back on it as a teacher, both to the student listening and witnessing and also to the person giving the testimony. Is that also true, Miriam, with the survivors that you've interviewed? Yes, absolutely. But I also wanted to say something else about being present and listening to survivor testimonies. Often in academia, I don't know whether you have experienced the same thing, but in conferences after your presentation of a talk, you know, people applaud. And I get very uncomfortable with that. Recently, I was at a conference and there was an you know, academic before me who was talking about a famine that took life of many, many, many people. And the 
academic was just reading it as it was a newspaper advertisement with no change of voice recounting that there are 200,000 people who have just died made me very uncomfortable after the presentation everybody clapped and um, the next person was me and I was to read um, letters from a death camp of 1916 and of a woman who then was tortured raped and murdered afterwards and I said please I don't want anybody to applaud after my presentation because we should not applaud human tragedy. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Miriam Kalachi and James Smith, and our subject is genocides. The hatreds that poison have a nasty habit of recurring. Let's hear from our Srebrenica survivor, Nejad Avdic, again, this time talking about the current worsening situation in Bosnia. I never escaped from the hell of Srebrenica. I, I didn't come from hell to some kind of paradise somewhere in, in, in Bosnia where I could keep living peaceful. First, I fought for my life. Then I fought for justice. As a protected witness at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And today I fight against those who deny the truth and the obvious judicial facts established and confirmed by many courts international and domestics. That is what drives me all the time. That is what motivates me. I'd like to move on to the institutional impact, if you like, or institutional response when reacting to genocide and, frankly, steering future policy. I wonder, James, if you could speak to that. Yes. I mean, Ed, the the situation in Bosnia today that we've been hearing out uh, from Nedjad just describes how little we've learned when I say we, how little our governments and institutions have learned in preventing genocide and mass atrocities. Effectively, there's the same response to the growing Serb nationalism today than the European powers had in the early 1990s. And that's really just to be very sort of tentative and sort of dance around the situation and try and have diplomacy that will help the situation European nations are divided about it. Meanwhile, Dodik and those around him are on this path towards um, secession, which has a very high risk of leading to violence and atrocities. And it's driven by the same sort of expansionist, Serb nationalist expansionism. And there isn't an understanding of what to do about it. There's almost a paralysis. Engagement, yes, but a paralysis in terms of what should be done. And you know, where we look at the genocide against the Tutsi, 1994, and, and other genocides around the world, is sadly the same old response, which is going to be too little and too late. But in the situation that's happening in Bosnia right now, there could be targeted sanctions on Dodik, who is raising monies to build his own militias and armies. He and those around him have investments in Germany, in London, and these could be turned off. And the, the other way in which we could help to put the brakes on the situation is by strengthening the peacekeepers. Britain basically pulled out uh, after Brexit in supporting the European mission out there. But there is provision for us to provide support through NATO. And there's some very key areas where the peacekeeping could be bolstered. There's already a mandate for this. So it's not like anything's got to be created. It's just providing that additional support to say that the world is here, the world's watching, and we're not going to allow this pathway towards war and mass atrocities to happen again. But I think there's a broader issue here at stake. And this is the issue that the perpetrators, we usually don't meet perpetrators in our daily lives. 
people just have this very abstract notion of what the perpetrator is. And I think we need to be just much more honest to one another and just also acknowledge that all of us have darkness inside of us. And I always think that if I hear about the crimes committed, I always think to myself, this could have been me committing the crime, but it isn't because I made certain choices. So I think we need to change the narrative a little bit about that our life stories are made up not just of the choices that we have done, but also the choices we haven't done. And in so many ways, I think as individuals um, going through the streets, um, we commit non-compassion or ethical crimes constantly. And I think we need to, while talking about and keeping our governments accountable, I absolutely agree because we are citizens and this is our right and duty to do, but we are also human beings and our right and duty as human beings is to explore what it means to be human. And darkness is part of that um, conversation. And I think that's really important to stress. I just couldn't agree with you more, Miriam. One of the reasons I ended up leaving medicine and doing what I do, helping to establish the Holocaust Center and running Aegis Trust, was because I'd visited the Holocaust Museum in Israel, in Jerusalem, with my brother Stephen. And I was a medical student at the time, and I saw a statistic on the wall that 45% of doctors had joined the Nazi Physicians League. And it just stopped me in my tracks, because what that says is two things. One... There was a choice because if in Nazi Germany there wasn't a choice, then all the doctors would join the Nazi Physicians League. But half of the doctors meant that this wasn't about people being psychopaths or uh, rabid anti-Semites that wanted to commit genocide. There was, this was, you know, flick a coin. I thought 50% chance if I had been born two generations earlier in Germany, yeah, 50% chance that. I would have joined the Nazi Physicians League too because I'm no better or worse than anyone else. And so, it, and it doesn't mean that all those doctors were committing awful medical experiments. They were just part of this large machine legitimizing what became these genocidal operations. And this emphasizes the point that you made that this isn't just about pointing a finger saying, oh, these people, these governments, you know, they become perpetrators. It's about yeah, how we understand how perpetration happens in the first place. I also think, I mean, this is a very simple equation, but the difference between a perpetrator and the victim is that the perpetrator has the choice, right? As a victim, you don't have the choice not to be the victim. Us as educators, whether it's me as a chaplain, I also have an academic appointment at the history faculty at Oxford, or me as, you know, as a tutor, this is what for me is the key and also why I love my profession um, so much, because history it's a way for us to look at other past lives and how those human beings have chosen for their lives, the choices they have made, the choices they haven't made. And I think that's very educational for our new generation. And I'm very excited about the new generation of our students because they are questioning a lot about choices, whether it's the choice of, around gender pronouns or the choice of you know, how they want to lead their lives and whether they are using plastic cups or, or things like that. This is essential. This will make a difference also in a larger picture. Right. My generation didn't do that. I must admit, you know, and I'm a bit ashamed because of that. I mean, now I look at my students, I'm like, wow. So I'm very hopeful about our new generation because they are asking what consequences their choices will have. I don't think I've ever spoken so little in a Naked Reflections podcast. And, and that's because you two have been incredibly 
eloquent, as has Nejad. And unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thanks to my guests, Miriam Kalachi and James Smith. And thank you for listening. You might want to have a listen to our archive of dialogues with topics as varied as peace and war. Feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. And there's plenty more to come too. I'll be back next week with another topic and new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.